Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business for this very special episode. It's the big 150. Now, you know what? If I reflect and think back over the last two years since I started Scale Up Your Business, I couldn't have really imagined that I would get to this place. I remember sitting in my dark living room with a microphone in front of me thinking, Nick, what the hell are you doing? And now, as I said, 150 episodes later, here we are. So I wanted to do something extra special to celebrate this milestone. And instead of you listening to me talk into a microphone and, you know, get sick of this bloody Australian accent um, or, you know, an amazing guest, because I've had plenty, I thought we would look back a bit of a retrospective episode, so to speak, um, thinking of all the amazing people that have um, graced the microphones of this podcast. So for the 150th episode, I am going to share with you 10 of my most favorite conversations, uh, sound bites, if you like, from 10 amazing guests that I've had the privilege to interview on the podcast. Now, before I do that, I just want to say a huge thank you, a huge thank you to everyone who's listened, everyone that I've had the privilege to help through various insights, strategies, tactics. I get so many messages from all of you. It's amazing. A thank you to all the great guests that have been on the show. A thank you to uh, my podcast agency, the guys at Progressive, uh, who do all the amazing work on um, sound production and sound editing. It's been a huge ride, incredibly grateful, and I'm going to keep on doing it. So enough from me, let's kick this off. So I'm really proud to say that the first person that I am going to bring onto the episode today is the amazing Neil Patel. Now, Neil is a New York Times bestselling author. The Wall Street Journal has called him a top influencer on the web. Forbes says he is one of the top 10 marketeers of all time. And Entrepreneur Magazine has said he's created one of the most brilliant companies today in the US. Now, he's recognized as a top 100 entrepreneur under the age of 30 by President Obama and a top 100 entrepreneur under the age of 35 by the United Nations. He's often called the professor of marketing because he focuses so much on the data, the analytics, the trends. But what was really memorable and fascinating about my conversation with Neil is we didn't talk about any of that stuff. We spoke about marketing today and more importantly, the power of branding. So listen, I hope you enjoy the 150th episode of Scale Up Your Business and a look back at these amazing conversations. Let's kick it off. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business again, Neil Patel. I think marketing today and I know this sounds cliche because your background is branding. It's just getting your brand out there in as many channels as possible. The, when I first started, um, you could build a business off of one channel. Facebook grew through the referral program through emails. I'm not saying they haven't done other things, but that was a huge factor of their growth early on. Uh, Yelp, uh, companies like Quinn Street, they grew a lot through SEO. 
right? In other words, there were channels that people were using to grow. Dropbox, you know, tweet out, uh, tweet out a message about signing on Dropbox will give you more space. Things like that has really helped grow Dropbox over the years. So when you think about how some of these companies have grown through one channels, you know, channels nowadays are very crowded. Any channel that's good is going to be crowded. It's just a question when, and it's going to get expensive. Again, it's just a question of when. So nowadays, marketing has turned into an omni-channel approach in which going and relying on one channel doesn't work anymore, especially because there's all these algorithms. It may work really well at the beginning, but algorithms get tougher and tougher. It gets harder and harder. Paid ads get more expensive. People raise more money. They're willing to lose money for longer because they have such a big bankroll, right? So in other words, you have no choice but to try out all the channels because they're all going to get crowded. It's just a question. The second thing with marketing is it's not hard or expensive to copy someone's products, features, messaging, design, whatever it may be. For that reason, the biggest thing that you have advantage, your moat, as you would say, would be your brand, mm -hmm. right? You still buy Nike shoes because they're Nike. Um, Kylie Cosmetics is a great example of this. Kylie Jenner, right? One of the Kardashians, her company valued yep. at a billion dollars. And if you look at what they say her net worth is on Forbes, they say over a billion dollars. Sure. She probably has partners in taxes and whatever that, but let's not get into details. Nonetheless, she's rich, right? She's rich as shit. She's done very well. And you know, what's amazing about what she did. I'm not trying to knock her on this. I'm actually giving her props for this. I don't know the cosmetic space, but I bet you there's other people who have products that are just as good as hers, right? Um, because there's so many people in this world, roughly 7 billion, there's a chance that someone else has created a cosmetics company with a product that's just as equivalent as good, maybe even potentially better. There's even people out there who have created better products than me who are competitors. I'm not saying I'm the best at anything. Again, I'm not trying to talk crap on Kylie, but yet she created a very large company really quickly. What made her do really well? Her brand. Beats by Dre. Beats by Dre has done very well in the past. They sold to Apple for over a billion dollars. Why? Because every single celebrity was rocking a Beats by Dre headphone when they were going through the NBA game or soccer game or football game, whatever you want to end up calling it. They were out. I'm listening to them now. There you go. See, it's, it's even made its way to little old England and, and little old Nick. It, it, exactly. <laughs> so branding is what sets you apart. It's that touchy, feely, emotional feeling. And the question is, is can you get your brand everywhere? So combine pushing up. Have you always, have you, have you always thought this? I mean, back to what you said at the very beginning, you said it was about, cause I, cause I, you know, my, my expectation meeting you today and having this conversation would be that we'll get pretty, pretty technical pretty quickly. <laughs> cause you know, a lot of your brand is around very technical action yeah. stuff and testing. Yeah. Which is, which is one of the things I quite like about what you do, but You've actually sort of surprised me here a bit because you're talking a different language. I can see it. I totally get why you're saying it. Do you reckon that is that a change or is that something that just now you have to have a strong brand because, you know, as you said, this you've got to get it out there in so many different channels. It's the only real differentiator um, because of how things have evolved. See, I've been an entrepreneur for long enough. Uh, there's people who have been doing it longer than me, but I've been doing it for roughly 18 years now. All right. So when you look at the math, before, I used to be able to create companies, and yet keep in mind, I've also had an agency, a consulting agency for so long, I've seen thousands and thousands of businesses and data. Used to be able to 
create big businesses. When I'm saying big businesses, go from very small to over 100 million just through tactics and grinding it out and having really good people. But what's changed over the years is there's just so much competition because the cost of creative business these days is so cheap that these tactics and these strategies that you do, everyone is copying. So the biggest differentiator that we're seeing in the last few years has been brand. Wow, that's cool. I love that. Of course, I'd say that because it's my background. <laughs> but, but just think of it, right? You, you want to go to Harrods or whatever shopping center. You go there not because they rank on Google. You go there because of their brand. You, you buy a BMW or, or, or a Merc because of their brand. You have an American Express or a Visa or a MasterCard because of their brand. You don't Google, huh, I want a credit card. Where do I go? You just know these brands. You want a car. I'm not saying it's going to be a Mercedes or BMW, but you probably already know some brands that you like. There is no Googling involved. That's the power of branding. Okay, our second guest on today's 150th episode is Mike Michalowicz. Now, Mike is just a cool guy, just a humble guy. He has written a number of books, but the book that I love the most, the one that has probably made the biggest difference to not only my businesses, but also the people that come into my world that I help with their businesses, is a book called Profit First. Now, basically, it's nothing like rocket science. It's, it's effectively that cash is king in every business, and you've got to pay yourself first, and you've got to understand how to do that. So Profit First is, as far as I'm um, concerned, absolute priority reading for anyone who is starting out on their entrepreneurial journey. He's also written some other books. Uh, Clockwork is great. The Pumpkin Plan is great. And when he came on Scale Up Your Business uh, last year, we talked about his new book, which is called Fix This Next. But it's not really the books that I want to cover. The thing that really struck me about Mike is his story, you know, from losing it all to achieving massive success. So that's where we want to kick it off today. I hope you enjoy this amazing soundbite from Mike McCallowitz. Uh, just the the quick story on me. I've been an entrepreneur my entire adult life ever since university. And I um, had the good fortune, maybe, maybe the misfortune of building and selling two companies early on in my life. They're both in the tech space. One was a private equity exit. Another one was a Fortune 500 acquisition. And I uh, became a self-made millionaire in my early 30s. Thought I had it all figured out. I was a genius. And the arrogance was just building along with the ignorance. Um, I, I started a third business as an angel investor. I sucked at it. I had no right to do what I was doing. <laughs> it was just aimlessly spending money. And uh, I, I now call, actually call myself the angel of death because of the 10 companies that I started, all 10 companies failed within six months. I was paying bills for companies that didn't even exist. It was such a fast collapse. But also with, with the money I'd made, the arrogance was explosive. I, I got the big house uh, in the community I live. I, I, I got a place in Hawaii to go on sabbatical. I had the expensive cars, the Dodge Viper, you know, all that stuff. And um, wiped out myself fast within two years. And uh, the turning moment for me and, and kind of the restart that I needed was when my uh, accountant called me and said, you should declare personal bankruptcy. He's like, you've lost it all. And I logically, had saw, I logically saw my accounts dwindling, but didn't emotionally accept it until this point. Went home to my family that night, and for the first time ever, I was admitting how bad things were. I had been lying by omission. Yeah. And uh, I'm sobbing and crying because we were going to lose our house. We did. We lost it 30 days after the fact. We, we lost our car. We lost everything. And um, 
I saw my daughter, she was nine years old at the time that I couldn't afford her horseback riding lessons. And as she heard that from me, she was sobbing already. She ran away. I thought she was running away because she was so afraid of me and so angry, but she was actually running away to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And she ran back as fast as she could. And she goes, daddy, daddy, since you can no longer be the provider for us, please take my money. And, uh, if I think uh, about it, I'll actually start crying. crying. I've got, a, I've got a, um, an eight-year-old and she, she's done similar things when we've talked about stuff like that too. I've had, I, our stories are very parallel. I lost some money going from private equity into tech and similar. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, I know the feeling. So as you're telling that now, I'm sort of, I've got goosebumps and I'm going, I can feel it. I can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, brother. You know, we've been there and it's what comes out of babe's mouths. I mean, our children, it was so genuine and thoughtful and I was so ashamed of me. What a scumbag. And um, I went through, it wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, I got to fix this. Next morning I woke up and I started hitting the bottle. I, I went through depression for two years. I tried to medicate through alcohol. I couldn't sleep. I was an insomniac. But also it became a seedling to find new solutions. It ripped me down to the core saying, I don't really understand entrepreneurship. I don't even understand the basics of how to make money on a sustainable, in a sustainable way. And uh, that triggered me to investigate it. As I investigated it, I started to write about it. As I wrote about it, I was like, I got books in me. And uh, I decided to pursue the dream of mine, which was actually being a business author. And so I, I went all in in it. Um, I've written these books now as a result. I've started and run three businesses currently. When I say run, own. I have a president for each company. And um, I'm a shareholder in three small businesses. And I experiment with my own businesses on these methods and ideas. And I, I get the good fortune of meeting with, it must be hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs, either speaking to them from a stage or sometimes through a podcast or meet them face to face. But I, I just, this is my community and I will be of service to small business owners till, till my final breath. Wow. I mean, you could say, listening to that story, you could say that's a gift, what you were given there. Cause obviously, you know, maybe- yeah, it did, Sure as hell didn't feel like a gift. <laughs> it, felt like a, it felt like a kick in the nuts. No. I'm not, I'm not saying right? you're sitting there happy about giving up the Viper in the house and the, and the and the horse riding lessons, but I mean, you know, if you think about how many people you've helped since, you know, and yeah. obviously the books are in you, but sometimes you need to feel that pain sometimes to realize. And it, in retrospect, it, it was the ultimate gift. And I'm so grateful for it. I don't wish it upon anyone though. And I never, ever, ever want to go through it again, but I hope it has awakened me to this. And um, yeah, it started, it started a journey that's been the most joyous journey of my life and, and it continues to be. I'm, I'm 12 years into this now being an author and uh, I, I can't ever see stopping. Alrighty, now as we continue this journey down memory lane, I am delighted to say that our next guest is Rock Thomas. Now, for those of you who have been listening to almost every episode of Scale Up Your Business, you'll remember that when Rock came on, it was such a charging, powerful interview that I had to go for a 10 kilometer run afterwards just because I was so fired up. And, you know, Rock is one of those incredible people who has the ability to do that. You know, he he's so himself, he's just such a motivated, inspiring guy. You know, his whole story is huge, humble beginnings. You know, he grew up on a small Canadian farm near Montreal. He's a self-made millionaire. He's really devoted himself to helping others learn the power of their identity. And he's famous for saying one of my one of my favorite things, which is say yes and figure it out later. Now, the cool thing about Rock also is that we met through a mutual friend, Ken Eslick, 
And we had this kind of weird serendipitous first meeting in Amsterdam where we were both in the city for 24 hours crossing over and we had an amazing dinner connected and have become good friends. So it was great to listen back to this episode. And there were, again, like all of these, these amazing guests, there are so many awesome things that I could share. But one of the things that I really like about Rock is his intention and focus. So where I want to go today is when he spoke about the benefits that come when you put everything that you can into every task. And as I've said, and, and I think it's quite a common saying that how you do anything is how you do everything. And I think that typifies Rock and his attitude to life. So welcome back to Scale Up Your Business, Rock Thomas. It's an interesting question because I think it's a question a lot of people ask themselves is what's my purpose? Why am I here? What's the meaning of my life? And I get asked that so often. How did you know? The reality is, Nick, I didn't know. But what I did learn is that if you show up 100% at whatever you're doing, life will start to reveal itself to you. And it started way back when I was working at McDonald's. I had this opportunity to clean the lobby instead of two people because one guy got sick. The manager asked me if I could clean the lobby do the best I could. He goes, you'll never be able to do it all. It's always done by two people. And of course, don't give me a challenge. <laughs> and I found a way to clean it on my own and keep the standards high. And I got a promotion. And that was enough for my brain to go, hold on a second here. When you go the extra mile, you get attention, you get recognition, you get more opportunities. So I started to continue to do that everywhere I went. And everywhere I went, I started to look for how do I do it better? How do I improve it? And it led me to so many opportunities. And what most people do is they go clean the lobby. Well, why? I'll, I just, I'm not going to get paid any. I get paid 10 bucks an hour to clean the lobby. Why would I bust my, my butt? The reason is this, is you bring you, that version of you to the next opportunity. And if you bust your butt, if you show up with integrity, if you give it everything you've got, one day the lead scorer on your team is going to get injured and you're gonna be put in that position, and you are not gonna to rise to the level of the opportunity, you are gonna to descend to the level of your preparation. Got it. And I've spent my whole life preparing for the opportunity that other people didn't prepare for, and therefore you shine better than the other people, if that makes sense. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think, you know, we spoke about this when we met, but. A lot of people don't get that or more importantly, they don't get it straight away. And, you know, a lot of what you said there, I sort of put down is partly showing up and stepping up actually and being the best version of yourself when you have the opportunity or not even when you do just to be there. And that actually gives two things, gives you the self-confidence and gets you the results that you can see. And then obviously it has wider, far impacting things that, you know, that can be beneficial to you and to others. I mean, yeah, we know this. You are what you do re repeatedly. So if you're going to repeatedly show up and just only perform when the big stage is there, you're not going to perform when the big stage is there. It's no one's. I studied all the best, the athletes, the Olympic athletes, the top performers. They practice harder than anybody else. Yeah, what do they say? It's, um, I think it was that famous quote. It's uh, you get uh, rewarded in public for what you do in practice. Exactly. Fantastic. So if you go back to sort of, you know, when you first, your, your business success, because I mean, a lot of people on this podcast are, I mean, many of the ones who get in touch with me, they're early stage. Yeah, I call them startup to scale up. And the reason I, I, I launched the podcast and the reason I kind of do what I do is I found that lots of entrepreneurs who start businesses aren't great at scaling them. And in a lot of cases, it becomes a mindset thing, which you've touched on and a few other bits. But 
just take us through kind of, you know, your beginning when you really started to sort of make it, so to speak, and, and kind of a little bit more insight for, um, for everyone on the show. Well, I think it's a, an evolution. I have something called the eight tra- characteristics of success. And one of them is, you know, a tracker, the personality of you that's a tracker. I was really good at tracking numbers. Okay. So I knew what my efforts were giving me. Most people struggle because I own a few real estate companies. If you ask the average realtor what their sales are at at any given time of year, they go, I don't know. What are, how many phone calls do you need to make in order to, uh, you know, get a closed transaction? I have no idea. So how are you going to be motivated if it takes you, you know, a hundred calls and three and a half hours to reach those people and you're going to make $7,000? How are you going to motivate yourself when you call for two hours? You get nothing. You won't. You'll be discouraged. So one of the elements that I work on with people is I say, we got to develop how you track your time, your money, and your results. And if you're not willing to do that, you're going to be an average producer. Just accept that. So I was fortunate in that I just would go into things and I'd pay attention. I would learn from the people around me. If I couldn't answer a question from a client, I'd walk around the hallways and I'd say, hey, Nick, I got stumped here. What would you have said? Hey, John, I got stumped here. What would you have said? I was so passionately curious and I hated to lose that I would just find out and go, that'll never happen again. I'm not going to be stumped. I refuse to be stumped on that one. I will push past that. I'm going to get to the 10-yard line. Next time, I'll get to the 9-yard line, then the 8, then the 7, and then I will ram that in and score the goal by hook or crook. Most people aren't like that. They go, oh, I got stopped at the 10-yard line. Uh, we'll kick a field goal. Sorry, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an no, no, American no. football. I got to remember. We get it. We get um, it. <laughs> okay. oh, I certainly get it. So, okay. <laughs> um, well, I get half the points I would if I then I completed. So how do you scale up? Me, we, they. First, you go in, you become great, me. Then you bring somebody alongside of you that observes you and watches your expertise. And then you give them feedback as you observe them. And then you, once they've hit the standards that you have, you move away and you go into your next business. I have 37 streams of income. I have different people running different companies because I went in, I put the light bulbs in, I cleaned the floors, I did that, I answered the phones. And then I got somebody to do that little piece and I gave them feedback and I built my businesses that way. So me, we, they is the system I use, get really good at it, be passionately curious and track. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but these are just some of the things off the top of my head that most people don't do. And it comes from a belief often that, well, you know, nobody can do it like me. So, or they hire somebody, but they don't train them properly and they do a crap job and they go, Oh my God, that was a waste of time. I hired them, I paid them, I did their job for them, and now I'm buying it back. I'm not doing that again. Okay, well, next up, we're going to change pace a little bit. Whereas Rock Thomas is fire in terms of his energy, I now want to bring someone on who is so considered and so reflective and so insightful in terms of how they talk about things, particularly in the world of business, that it's a bit of a change of pace, but equally as powerful. And that person is Daniel Priestley. Now, Daniel Priestley has had a major impact on my life in terms of business and my entrepreneurial journey. He has written some amazing books, and the one that I love the most is called Oversubscribed. It's basically how you can get people lining up at your door to do business with you. And I have adopted many of those philosophies in my businesses, and also how I teach others in terms of their sales and marketing. But the thing I like about Daniel is 
he he has an ability to string things together in a way that people can really understand. He talks in stories and it's just amazing when he kind of gets going and talks about kind of where things are now and how we we have to think about, you know, what we're trying to create in our lives. And so the soundbite that I want to share is when we spoke about it's currently the best of times and the worst of times and how you show up in a powerful and vital way is critical. Now, we recorded this episode pre-COVID and like a lot of stuff that Daniel talks about, he's ahead of his time really. And what I really like about this is that, you know, we, we've we gone through such a seismic change with COVID and I think the world of work is, is probably not going to go back to how it ever was before. And so this idea now that, you know, if you want to become an entrepreneur, it is the best time in history to do that. Well, that's something that Daniel talks about and something that I think is an important message for us all to hear. So here we go, Daniel with his amazing Australian tones. And of course, I would say that. Welcome back to Scale Up Your Business. It's like it's never been harder and it's never been easier. It's, it's strange. So um, it's, you know, the, the key to having a great company is standing out, scaling up and making an impact. And um, when you think about standing out, if you get your message right and if you get it in the right format, you know, you can have a million people know about your business by releasing a YouTube video and, uh, you know, you can have a podcast and a hundred thousand people listen to a podcast. So you, there has never been an easier time or a better time to be standing out in a noisy marketplace. But with that said, it's never been harder because you've got a million voices who all have access to the same microphones. Um, and you know, so, so it's, it's the best of times and the worst of times. What we're seeing is polarization. So we're seeing people who who clearly say, this is the best time to be in business and I'm loving it. I'm earning more money than ever. I'm having a great time and I'm surfing the waves of change. And you get other people who say, Hey, I'm getting disrupted. I'm being dumped by these waves. Um, I'm being left behind. Um, my income hasn't changed in 10 years, but I'm working harder than ever. So you're getting this polarization in society and it's reflecting across politics and it's reflecting, you know, in many different parts of society. But um, it's that kind of what happened in the first industrial uh, age, the first industrial revolution was there was this line written by um, uh, Charles Dickens, which was, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Um, and, uh, and we're kind of having a little bit of that at the moment. Yeah, no, I can see that. And just to jump on, on one of the points you made there around some people are, you know, when you talked about sort of dumping ways, I was going back to Bondi and think about that. But um, <laughs> when you say some people are having an amazing time and some people are challenged, what, what do you think the difference is between those paradigms? So what's the person doing having a great time versus the one who's struggling with how the world's changed? So I define this as the difference between functional or vital. So functional is being a viable solution. It's being a potential option. It's being a commodity. Um, and the value of functional people is dropping through the floor. So um, functionality be, can be uh, replaced by technology or overseas solutions in lower income environments or you know, all sorts of different ways you can replace functionality or transform functionality. Uh, and vitality, if you look in the dictionary, there's two main definitions of vital, which is uh, life force and irreplaceable. So essentially, there are these people who are the irreplaceable life force of their business and the irreplaceable life force of their, their industry. And they try and show up as that irreplaceable life force. They're leaning in. Um, they're, they're, they're in their industry to make waves. They want to, they're not so much worried about functionality. They're worried about outcomes. And the more that you show up as a vital person, 
um, and someone who's leading the way and thinking and passionate and all of those positive things that we associate with key people of influence, then and and the more it's about vitality than functionality, then you the more you end up surfing the wave that's happening at the moment. So um, when you see someone who's really caught up in their functionality, their skill set, their what they used to do, the you know the the predictable set of steps that they used to go through in order to crank the handle, um, though those people are having a harder time. And the people that are embracing change and dynamism and, and focused on outcome versus process, uh, they're the ones having a great time. Right. And to, to sort of build on that point, you know, this is not a necessarily a generational thing. I imagine this is more of a mindset thing. Oh, completely. There are people who, you know, let's, you know, let's look at someone like George Clooney, for example, just popped into my mind. Um, you know, this is a guy who you know, decides to get behind a, a a new startup and make 700 million uh, from from growing and scaling and using his brand from this particular startup. And he's also engaged in human rights issues with his wife. And he's also engaged in trying to transform the environment. He's also doing movies and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so uh, so it's not an age thing at all. It's really it's about showing up in a powerful and vital way. Okay, we are halfway through number five. Now, I'm often asked, you know, who has been one of the most challenging people to interview in this kind of last couple of years of you having this podcast? And it's a tough question to answer because, you know, all the, all the conversations are just fun conversations, right? And when people come on the show, they're showing up and they want to add value to the audience. And as a lot of you know, I don't really prepare that much. I research every single guest and I, I try and make sure that I'm aware of the, the things they're working on right now so I can ask questions that are relevant and appropriate. But once we start the conversation, I tend to just listen and I want to go deeper on some of the things they say. And I listen to not just what they say, I also listen to the way they say it because quite often the inclination of how they say something is equally as important to the point itself. But if I'm pushed, probably the most challenging conversation is with a guy called Oren Claff. Now, Oren Claff is a master at pitching. And his book, Pitch Anything, changed the game for me, certainly in terms of when I have stood in front of VC and private equity firms at the board table asking for cash, asking for money. And the reason this was a challenging interview is that Oren is someone who absolutely lives what he preaches. And he's got a concept called frame control, which effectively means when he goes into a, a meeting, into a boardroom or such, he tries to take control of the room by some very clever, almost neuro-linguistic programming um, techniques and strategies. And when I had him on the podcast, you know what, I, I may have this wrong, perhaps I was overthinking it, but I'm certainly sure that he tried to do that on me right at the beginning. So it's interesting, like just to sort of be in that situation. But you know, it was a great conversation. We got into all sorts of cool stuff. But the thing that really jumped out was his way of articulating how you convert leads into sales. So that's where we're going to go. Let's go and hear how Oren talks about that. I know you're going to get a heap of value out of this soundbite. So companies are, even good companies are drowning in leads, drowning in leads. Um, uh, I've said this before, but I picture in my mind, uh, uh, you know, a group of campers going up, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Uh, the weather moves in. They're stuck up there, you know, for three days. Use up all the supplies. They're trying to get down. The weather's horrible. They have nothing left to eat or drink, but they're walking on ice and they're dying of thirst. 
<laughs> and that's lead. We're walking on mountains of leads. 7,000 companies, 7,500 companies, sales automation, CRM, yeah, yeah. nomination, funnel hacking, um, you know, database, uh, lead scraping, um, uh, lead nurturing, tagging, following, you know, Facebook, Facebook automation, thousands of companies set up to get you leads. But here's what's interesting, I think. And, and this sort of leads to flip the script. Any technology you attempt to use, even Zoom, we barely were able to use this, right? To convert a lead to a sale will make your life worse. And so the, the lost art of human interaction, right? Talking to a buyer and having them want what you have without them seeing the sales process transparently. When they see the sales process, they can just look at it and see what you're doing, why you're doing it. They control you, right? And every buyer knows what you're doing when you're doing features, benefits, trial close, overcoming objections, discounting. They see it. When they can see it, they can control you. So flip the script is about having the buyer enjoy the interaction with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Come to the understanding that you are a high status person in their industry, in your world, in their world, in the moment, uh, in the industry, because status equals trust. All right. You're talking to someone on a, as a, on a similar level, a peer type of thing. So that's you, a peer. Got it. Okay. If somebody believes you're below them, there's a whole host of problems. You cannot continue, propose, pitch, sell something. Can you close a deal with you in that situation? Have you, have you seen an example of the status level isn't bridge? Because you talk about in the first book around frame control, yeah. which is, we against that. But there's always this piece where you've got to do something to get the power balance on some level, either equal, which we're talking about now, or, but if you're if that low status position, can you ever close? Have you seen that? Or is it just by luck? You, you cannot. You, yeah, okay. through discounting. Through discounting. Okay. Pricing, you got it. Yeah. Giving up value. perceived as a, as a salesperson whose job it is to describe the features, send a proposal, and discount. You'll have a low margin, long cycle, difficult to close deal, and the customer will be a pain even after they close. That's true. So we can't proceed with the sale until they respect us as a peer. Right? All kinds of problems. We can come back and talk about that. So uh, people say, oh, I can develop trust. And they think they do that through rapport and liking and like me, right? So what sports do you play, Nick? Basketball, running, martial arts, weights. Oh, great. You know, I love, I love running. What kind of running do you do? Ultra running. Marathon Ultra running. running. Okay. Long distance, crazy oh. shit in the mountains. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so yeah, my buddy's a triathlete. You know, I've just picked up my miles. I'm doing sort of tw uh, 25 miles a week, 40 miles on a bike, but I'm also at CrossFit, you know, five, five times a day. So it looks like we didn't have a lot in common, you know, through athletics. How many miles a week are you putting down? God, in, in, in the heyday, it was 80 to 100 miles a week until my knees okay. packed up. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I know knees, knees are really issue. So now you're going to buy $2 million of stuff from me? No, we talked about running. It was fun, yeah. but no, it's different. That's a we're having pub conversation. Not we're not doing a deal. <laughs> we're not doing a deal. So people buy from you when they understand your value. They understand your value relative to the other options out there. They are. Um, uh, they know what the ROI you're offering is when they trust you and they have certainty. Okay. That the things you're saying that will happen in the future really will happen. So the sale is not about overcoming objections. It's elevating your status, which creates uh, trust, and showing them that you're an expert in their problem, that you've done it a thousand times. It's an easy push-up. I heard it the other day. Interesting your thoughts. Someone told me the definition of influence 
is not necessarily convincing someone else about something. It's convincing them that you believe that that's true. Yeah. yeah. Which is a similar sort of thing. So if I'm so certain, yeah. I turn up to a meeting, I'm certain this is right, and I can portray that to you or in the meeting, then that level of certainty is going to then rub up on the, on the person that you're trying to pitch to. Yeah. So, so showing someone that you're an expert yeah. provides certainty. Uh, and then ultimately having values that are unshakable gives you leverage. So that's what creates conversion today. Trust, mm-hmm. certainty that what you're saying will happen will actually happen and leverage, right? Uh, which gives you a final line in the sand in which they must make a decision because if buyers don't have to make a decision, they will continue to not make a decision. And what's an example of leverage? Oh, leverage? Sure. So uh, look, Nick, um, I'm very excited to uh, propose our accounting services here to you today. We prepared a presentation uh, and you know, we'd love to be working with your company and uh, you know, you're going to be evaluating us over the next 15 minutes, over the next 15 days, you know, maybe 30 days to get an agreement in place. Uh, once you look at the proposal, once we figure out exactly what you need, you know, what the pricing is. But I can tell you a couple things. As much as you're looking at us and evaluating, we're also evaluating you. And we see some things that we like, but there's also some red flags that just popped up online looking at you that we'd like to clear up. We're pro- you know, I don't know if we're lucky. I don't know if we're smart. We're super busy this time of year. We're growing fast. And we're just in a position where we're able to choose our customers. And so we'd like to get in position to be able to choose you. And we're not quite there yet. But look, we'll tell you what we have. We'll give you some time to talk about what your needs are in context of what we're proposing, right? Yeah. And if our circles overlap, and, and uh, we'll find a way to go forward. Okay, next up, we have one of the world's most prolific podcasters, someone that I've looked up to for some time, and that is none other than John Lee Dumas, or JLD as he is affectionately known. Now, it was great having him on the podcast because he has literally smashed it out of the park. He makes millions out of his podcast. And I remember him saying that he did something like two and a half years straight of not missing a day without recording an episode and publishing it. So what I wanted to ask him when he came on Scale Up Your Business is how has he monetized? How has he made his podcast so profitable? And I also asked him what he noticed were the common denominators of the most successful guests, the most successful entrepreneurs that he has interviewed in terms of their attainment of success or scale. So we're going to get into that in this, um, this conversation with him. But the one thing I remember is he said something like, most people are busy, but they're busy doing the wrong things. And the point being is that, you know, you can be busy or, you know, doing something that's taking you in the wrong direction. And that means that you're not going to get to where you want to be in business and indeed life. Such a powerful guy, such a successful podcaster. Welcome back, John Lee Dumas. It was an incredibly slow, incredibly steady, incredibly consistent climb. I mean, it is literally just one of those graphs that is just going like this, but over years, like years and years and years, 2,573 episodes I've done. So there was no hockey stick. There was no like, just like this happened and then this happened, like nothing at all. It was just getting up every single day for, by the way, 2,000 days in a row, five and a half years, I launched an episode. 
I decided to take a little break. You know, at that point, I moved back to three three days per week um, about two and a half years ago. But for five and a half years, I did not miss a podcast episode, and like that was just the consistency to the core, and the numbers just reflected that. Where people just knew that they could rely on that daily dose of you know, excitement, enthusiasm, knowledge, value from entrepreneurs on fire. So slow and steady, it was pure consistency, nothing else. Wow, awesome. I love that. I love the, the discipline behind doing that and the commitment behind that's huge. All right, listen, I've got one last question for you because obviously you've interviewed some of the most amazing entrepreneurs in the world. Over 2000, I believe you've got Tony Robbins, Gary Vee, Seth Godin, all those guys, right? Big, big names. What are the common threads that stand out you know, from those conversations in terms of characteristics and attributes? I suppose, put simply, is there a formula that you've seen for entrepreneurial success that's come from all those conversations that's given you some clarity around those points? The three biggest commonalities that I've identified from just the top, top performers are that number one, they are incredibly productive on a daily basis. They are unbelievably productive. Number two, they are disciplined to the core. And number three, they are absolutely focused. So let's go back to productivity. They're not just productive like most people are productive. Like Nick, most people are going to be like, I was so busy today. I was so busy. But you were busy doing the wrong stuff. Like you can go a million miles an hour in the wrong direction and you're just a million miles in the wrong direction. Like that's how most people live their lives. They're so busy doing the wrong stuff. Productive people produce the right content. That's productive. Now, disciplined. Disciplined, I got this from my military days. I was an officer in the US Army for eight years. Like, If you are disciplined, you are a disciple to one plan of action. You have a plan of action and you're a disciple to committing that plan of action. And then focused. Like The best, most successful people on a consistent basis, they are laser focused. They are following one course until success. They are focused, focused, focused. It's the people that you know have the bright, shiny object syndrome that are just flittering after the latest and greatest. They never attain success because they're never sticking at anything long enough. Okay, now continuing the theme of people who have Amazing shows, amazing platforms to share their message. I'm delighted to now have back Patrick Bet David. This was a really fun conversation because he he's a huge entrepreneur in terms of what he's created. He also has a channel called Valuetainment on YouTube, which has literally had hundreds of millions, if not billions of views. It's like crazy, crazy stuff, right? But what I really enjoyed about this conversation with him is we kicked it off with a passion of mine. Actually, we kicked it off talking about Kobe Bryant. Now, Kobe Bryant was a huge influence on me and my love of basketball. And as we had this conversation, um, Kobe had sadly recently passed away. And I know that Patrick was one of the last people to interview Kobe. So we, we kicked off the conversation talking about that, actually, and talking about what it means to be the greatest of all time. But the thing I really liked about the conversation was a little bit later on when Patrick explained what he thought were the principles that he follows in scaling a business and how he looks at the formula for scaling a business and designing a company's culture to fit those scale-up goals. So Patrick, as I said, hugely inspirational character, very, very direct in his thinking, very, very clear in his thinking. So this you know, masterclass in many ways of how he's created a nine-figure empire is exactly what you should be thinking about if you have similar aspirations. So great to have you back, Patrick. Here we go. 
so for me, scaling is all math. So if you ever seen the movie Moneyball, I don't know if you've seen the movie Moneyball with Moneyball. Billy Bean and Brad Pitt. Oh, I love it. One of my favorite films. Then perfect. That to me is scaling. It's very simple. He took, it took him years to realize the number one most important data is on base percentage, right? In every business, the leader and the founder of that company, they think what they have as the number one most important data point or behavior, it could be seven different things, but one person is going to be right. So for me, any business I go into, if I sit with a pharmaceutical company and they come and they ask me to do consulting with them, first thing I say is let's, let's write the formulas on the board. What do you mean? What behavior produces what that eventually produces revenue? What is it? So we go backwards. Well, to get the revenue, we get it from this kinds of customers. Okay, what does your customer look like? Like this. Where do you get your customers? Like this. Who, what source brings your best customers? Oh, out of these seven, I would say this one's the best one. Okay, great. How do you find more of this one? Oh, we typically find them through this. Okay, well, how much money can you put to find this? So then I lay out the formula and I say, why are you wasting this much of your money, $3.8 million putting money here, that this one here with $2 million, you're getting better results than this three point eight? We've never thought about that before. Well, maybe you got to pump it up there to see if that's... So everything to me about scaling is all mathematical formula. Once you figure out the formula, then you need a strong driver to drive that formula. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of the people, because I mean, I've worked at some businesses where they were so intentional. I mean, I worked at a business called Getty Images for a number of years where it took something like 10 interviews to get in that place. And they used to say there was only 10 people who thought strategically, and that was the sort of board. And then there was everyone else was like, get stuff done at a high level. Is that how, do you have a, a, a principle that like runs through your hiring as well around this in your business? Meaning what kind of people we hire here? Yeah. In which sense? Are you asking like a cultural talent? If cultural and behaviors as opposed to technical ability. So, you okay. know, someone who's someone who just like loves working hard and getting stuff done, for example, versus someone who's uber intelligent. So that's a great question you asked. So here's what we did. Here's what we did. For the longest time, I'll tell you what mistake we made. For the longest time, I wanted to hire talent that was like, oh my gosh, if we bring that guy on board, he's amazing. So we would compromise our culture to make it fit for him or her. Mm. And that was disastrous. So we had a hard time saying no, even though they looked perfect. And, and anybody would be so glad to get somebody like this, but if they came in and they were just a massive level of friction with fitting into the culture. And every time they would come in, they just wanted to change the culture. So we hired a culture person who came in cost us a group of money. And what she did is she went and interviewed 26 of our directors and executives and managers and went through, what do you stand for? What is it like working with Patrick? What he, what does he not compromise? And nobody, I could not know whose answers were whose. So when she came and presented all the answers in front of all my C-suite executives and my directors, it was very uncomfortable. I actually got uncomfortable and pissed off with a couple of my guys because I said, who said this? And who said that? which is natural. It's supposed to happen, right? It's supposed to happen. So then I said, if this is how these guys feel, then in my own mind, I said, okay, it's very easy to immediately go like, well, this is what you're doing wrong. Or it could go to, well, this is what we're doing right. You have to be able to go both places because I know many of the consultants will say, well, what are you doing wrong? Well, no one really knows the culture except for the person that's running the culture as a founder. So I sat down and I said, what's produced results? 
and I wrote it up. I said, what are you not willing to change? And it's a non-negotiable. I wrote them down. I said, what areas are you not an expert at? I wrote them down. I said, I'm willing to look into these areas. I'm not changing this. When I decided I'm not changing this, I had to fire my chief operating officer at the time. I came back and I fired my chief, op- chief operating officer because I said, that person is absolutely not on the same page with me. And behind closed doors, she kept talking to other people about how maybe my philosophies don't work at a big company because she came from a bigger company. And I said, we're friends still today. She and I talk regularly, but I just knew it wasn't working out anymore. So we made that adjustment and then we went and brought somebody else. So the moment we started re-recruiting people, here's what we would say. Uh, Nick, at our company, every month, everyone's required to read a book and you're required to write a paper on it. Uh, and you need to buy the book yourself and you need to take time to write, write the paper on it off hours. Are you comfortable with that? No. Okay, great. Awesome. Listen, man, thanks for coming down. This is not going to work out. Really? Yes. So it's no longer. Now we explain, this is 20 things that we do at our environment. This is how we work. Do you like this? I don't. This isn't the company for you as qualified as that person may be. So now let's set that aside. Having said that, here's the caveat. I learned engineers are very different. So right now we invested a few million dollars into software that we're developing. Engineers are not wired the same way as finances or case managers are, or sales flow is, or salespeople are, or VPs are. They're very different. So you had to then realize how certain departments wiring is with the best of the best engineers and how can you still accommodate them and keep them. They're different than everybody else. So there is, this is not a black and white answer. There's a very big gray area in this because if you're just black and white, chop, chop, you're also going to break a lot of things. So we found out what areas are gray and I'm open to those areas of being gray. We kept it that way and everything else that we're not open to compromising. We kept it uh, the way it was, and it's worked out very, very well for us the last 12 months. There is no one in the world quite like my next guest. And this conversation was great for so many reasons, but I think it's just because this guy is about as real as you get. There's no mucking around. There's no fluff. And that is none other than Steve Sims. Now, Steve, if you can remember back, um, he's, he's called or has been called the real-life Wizard of Oz because that's kind of what he does for a living. He makes the impossible happen. And the reason I like this conversation is, A, he's a character. He's got so many anecdotes and stories. And, and he explains how he does things in, in a way which is like effortless. You know, stuff that people don't do, he just has a knack for doing. So in this clip, Steve talks to me about, you know, in a pretty detailed manner, um, how he does what he does and a very interesting story of what happened to him in Italy. But I suppose the key thing I remember from the conversation and something that I will take away forever in my life and also use it to advise, I think, other people in business is that the reason that we don't get what we want, the main reason right, is simply we just don't ask for it. What would happen if we asked for what we want? And if I add to that, we asked for what we want, but we kept asking until we got it. Okay, and that, that's what Steve does, and that's why he has managed to create so many amazing things for people and an amazing life for himself. 
So welcome back to the show, Steve Sims. I talk to people. Um, that's, that's funny enough, and i got stories and get into that, but um, my superpower is ignorance. I've never understood that anything is impossible. And so while everyone's kind of like, you know, all held up with, oh, that can't happen. In fact, the best thing I like to hear is when people come to me and they go, well, I'd like to do this, but it's impossible. Because that just is fuel to the fire and it's just an immense challenge for me. And I know there is nothing impossible. So then I just start kind of like eating the elephant bit by bit by bit and I pull it off. Now, the funny thing is, the more extreme things you pull off, and it didn't always happen like this. It'd be a case of, you know, I want a yacht. And then it was a case of, I want a yacht with a string quartet. And then I want a yacht with a string quartet. And I want Celine Dion. So it, it stepped up. And as I got more well-known for doing these miraculous, amazing things, um, it became easier because I would go to, like, the museum in Florence and go, hey, I want you to shut down because at 9 o'clock tonight, I want to set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. And just as they're about to go, don't be stupid, you know, we don't do that. You turn around and go, because I did this with Guns N' Roses, I did this with the Pope, I did this with Elon Musk, and I would like this to be another one of those magical moments. And they go, oh, he's obviously got experience in it. And so they let it happen. So the more amazing things you do, the more amazing things are possible for you to do. But it all starts with asking the question that can we do it? Yeah, I can see that. And also the fact that no one's probably asked those bloody questions before. So, you know. oh, I've, got a, I've got a ridiculous story. Uh, can I give you a quick one? Yeah, do it. This is going to be right. a whole podcast of stories, Steve. So let's right. go so for it. So I'll, I'll give you the condensed beginning, then I'll give you the PowerPoint. And the PowerPoint is there to benefit everyone listening to this. So I had a client that wanted to do a fantastic Italian meal. His only caveat to me was he wanted a dining experience to impress his mother-in-law and father-in-law um, in Florence. So it was that word experience that stopped me going to the Italian version of Open Table. So I actually took over the museum, the Accademia di Galleria, set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David, and as they're eating their pasta, that's when I brought in Andrea Bocelli to serenade them. Oh, now, man. That, was, that was incredible. That was amazing. I pulled some favors. I contacted some very powerful clients I've got in Italy to get me introduced to the people that could make it happen. But here's the story. Here's the most powerful part of that. All the powers to be, all the controllers, all the owners, all the heads, uh, whether it be within Andrea Bocelli's camp, whether it be in the, the city of Florence, whether it be in the Academia de Gallery, they were all behind me because I had credibility with them. You know, they knew who I was. If they didn't know who I was, the people recommending me had that power and credibility. There was one guy, the curator of this museum. Now, like everything, if someone that owns it says, yeah, let's do it, he's never the one that actually does it. He passes it down to someone to make it happen. This curator quite simply hated me. You know, he looked at me like a little rich kid that would go around doing these amazing things for, uh, you know, overprivileged rich people. And as far as he was concerned, we had no knowledge or understanding of the artwork. So it was kind of a bit offensive to him. And I can understand that. It was his passion. But any time I had to ask this guy for anything, there was resistance. You know, like when you talk to your wife and she's in a bad mood and you oh, go, yeah. what's, wrong? what's wrong with you? 
And she goes, nothing, nothing. And you so know it was like passive. Involved. It was like what we call passive aggressive type of behavior. So they're kind of saying something to you, but you know, deep down, they're not really saying the real thing. The eyeballs are open. I'm just going to erupt in flames at any second now. Yes. Um, so this guy, every time we needed anything, he'd look at me and be like, okay. And it was that kind of thing. So on the night of the event, Andrea Bocelli is in the corner, just serenading him, warbling up his tones. The clients hadn't turned up yet. The chefs and the uh, table uh, decorators were getting that already. Andrea's son was in there because he was the pianist. Veronica, who's Andrea's wife, was stood next to me. And this curator was on the other side of, uh, of the wall to me, just, just folded arms, just watching all of this. And I had, I had known that I had to handle this guy because he was annoying and he was like a little, I'll be rude, but he was like a little bitch, you know? So I stood there and I thought, and this is where I'm wrong. This is where I'm, this is where I'm at fault. But I thought to myself, right, I'm going to get that little prick, you know? So I, I, I said, hey, you know, come over here, come over here. So he walks over to me, stood next to me, arms folded, watching Andrea just getting warmed up. So I thought to myself, I'm going to play with this little guy and, you know, teach him a lesson for giving me, you know, some headache. And I said to him, so look at that table. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? You know, what do you think of that? I said, you know, everything that would happen. He was like, no, it is, it is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I said, look at that. Andrea Bocelli's getting ready to serenade people while they're eating their dinner. Can you believe it? Andrea Bocelli? Is your musical act during a dinner party for six people? Can you believe that? And he's like, no, it is amazing. It is wonderful. It is brilliant. And I said, and all of this at the feet of the most iconic statue in the world. Can you believe that? And I'm just, I'm getting him all set up to give him a jab. Again, I was being very selfish, very immature, but hey-ho, you know, we get It's a great story, though, Steve. Keep going, because I'm I'm captivated for the punchline now. (laughs) So I I said to him, can you believe this? He's like, no, it is fantastic. And I thought, right, well, I've got got three confirmations out of him. Now's where I go for the slap. So I turned around and I said, so how do you think Steve Sims got to pull all of this off? And at that moment, I was expecting the... No one's as connected as you. No one's as smooth as you. No one can negotiate like you. The little shit didn't even look at me. He had his arms crossed and all he said was, no one's ever asked. Okay, we are almost there. Are you still with me? Well, the last couple of people here are equally as special as the others that have been on the show. But uh, the person that's up now is one of my mentors, Mr. Rob Moore, the disruptive entrepreneur himself. And a lot of you know this story, but I'll, I'll give you the quick reflection again. So before I got into podcasting and I was transitioning out of my private equity days, I realized that I needed to get some help. And I thought, well, who can I go to? And I thought, well, who's got the biggest podcast in the UK around business? And that is Rob. And I thought, well, you know, I need to, I need to learn because I could try and do this myself. I could try and figure it out. But the quickest way to achieve anything in life and to have success is to go to someone who's done it before, learn from them, learn from their successes, but also their mistakes so you don't make the same errors. So I reached out to Rob. He you know, gave me a, a masterclass in its own right of what podcasting is. He even helped me with the title, Scale Up Your Business, certainly helped me with my mindset. Because as some of you know, I had the intention to launch the podcast 
but I didn't get there straight away. I, I procrastinated for a few months, did lots of um, dry recordings, so to speak, and never released those episodes. I think they're hidden away somewhere in my computer. But over a period of time, I got out of my own head and realized that my message had to get out there. And it was Rob who inspired me to do that. Now, Rob himself is a successful entrepreneur. He's got multiple businesses. He's helped many, many people on their entrepreneurial journey. And he's a really interesting guy just in terms of the way he thinks about things. He, he thinks deeply. He asks really powerful questions. And so the clip that I want to share with you today is where Rob explains how he believes there is a paradox that if you want to be more wealthy, you have to stop thinking for yourself and you, think about, you have to think about how you serve other people. And I love that because one of the main reasons I, I do the podcast is to make a contribution and to help people. And one of the quotes that has always inspired me around that is from Zig Ziglar, where he says, if you want to help people get what they want in life, um, sorry, if you help people get what they want in life, you will have everything that you want and need in life. And that's certainly something that I learned from Rob. So enjoy this clip. Mr. Rob Moore. Yeah, so I think I got to a stage in my journey as an entrepreneur where I realized that my vision and my mission um, needed to be much bigger than myself. And there's a few reasons for this, Nick. One is I believe that if you want to grow, uh, you will grow in direct proportion to the size of your vision. So if you've got a vision to help your community, which is marginally bigger than you, you'll grow to the maximum capacity of your community. But if you have a global vision, you could potentially grow to the maximum capacity of your country or your continent. Now, if you have an intergalactic vision, like Elon Musk and, um, you know, Virgin Galactic, thank you, then, you know, you've got the, the scale not just on in the globe, but you've got the scale of, um, well, in infinite space and time. Um, John Demartini talks about the, the, the world being his playground um, and, you know, wanting to, to serve as many people on the planet as possible in, in, in any country. So I believe the bigger the scale of your vision and the scalability and the reach of your business model and your vision, um, I believe the more you'll grow and the more you'll contribute. So just trying to get rich yourself is a very small vision. It's, it's self-serving, whereas trying to change the world is, you know, serving vast numbers of people. Um, so there are commonalities of the richest people in the world. One of them is a, an, an inherent deserving of wealth and opulence. But one of them is a product or a service or a model um, or a life that serves vast numbers of people. So paradoxically, if you want to become more wealthy, you need to stop thinking about being wealthy for yourself and you need to serve more people and you'll get a portion of that wealth that you create. Um, and I also think that people don't really care about your personal vision. Like, I don't really think that people care if someone says, oh, yeah, I want to be a millionaire. I'm going to be a millionaire. I want to be a millionaire. Yeah, I'm going to be a millionaire. I don't think there's going to be millions of people going, yeah, I want you to be a millionaire. Yeah, I'm back with you. I'm, I'm with you every step of the way. I'll do whatever you say because I want you to be a millionaire. I mean, look, they, they might um, be inspired because they want to be a millionaire themselves, maybe. Um, but I think people are interested in people when they've got a product or a service or some content or something to say that benefits them. And this is the concept of fair exchange. So the concept of fair exchange is where you make fair profit for the work that you do and the, the person, the client or the people that you serve, they get fair value for the money that they pay for your product or service where you get fair profit margin. 
And fair exchange creates maximum scalability, maximum gratitude for you, i.e. You know, if you've sold something too cheap, you can be a bit resentful to your clients. It's not their fault. If you sold it too cheap, you'd be just, oh, it's not really worth my time doing this. Uh, Whereas if you made a fair profit and you didn't think you were ripping them off, you'd feel gratitude. Now, your client would feel gratitude if they got good value. If they paid too much, they'd feel a bit ripped off. And if they didn't pay enough, they'd feel like they'd got one over you. So when there's gratitude in you and gratitude in your client, you have financial fair exchange. Now, if you create financial fair exchange on a global level, you're going to get very rich and the world is going to benefit no end. And I guess I figured this out, I don't know, maybe a decade ago or just a bit under. And so I started focusing less on myself or more on others. Now, if you just serve everyone else and not yourself and you don't charge enough and you're doing all this stuff for free and everything's for charity, then you're doing the opposite. You're negating yourself. So financial fair exchange is where you get maximum profit margin, maximum wealth. But you have to have a desire to serve others and make a difference in the world as well as becoming a millionaire yourself. Last but certainly not least is one of my more recent interviews, uh, a powerful interview actually, and one that was in the planning for some time with the amazing Jay Abraham. Now, Jay is considered, if not the number one business strategist in the world today, certainly right up there. He has coached and mentored people like Tony Robbins on their business strategy. And these are people who have created, you know, empires worth billions of dollars. In fact, I forget the last figure, but, you know, he has created so many amazing successful entrepreneurs. It's incredible. I think he's called something like the $27 billion man or something like that. But the cool thing about Jay is he is so humble and so generous with his time. So when we recorded the interview, it actually went for two hours and he spent the first hour before we pressed the record button getting to know me and my business and really trying to add value to me first before we actually got into kind of all the stuff that he's done. So as much as I could have gone anywhere with this interview, I want to kind of delve right into something that he spoke about, which just, you know, it struck me incredibly, which is where we spoke about the principles in his book, which is something like 20 years old. And the incredible thing about this is how universally true and relatable those points still are for entrepreneurs. And this is this is the, the, the piece where he explains why that is the case. For me, it's incredible to think that, that someone can be so relevant today as they were decades ago. And I think that is the differentiator between someone like Jay Abraham and someone out there who is simply just a good business coach versus an outstanding one. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed these 10 amazing conversations. As I said, I'm really, really grateful to have been able to bring these to you. Uh, and the last one for today, Jay Abraham. I deal in universal principles that only need to be uh, modified for either market or media, but human nature does not change. Mm, it hasn't okay. more. And I learned, I learned universal principles and uh, they give you enormous power over, I mean, a lot of people today default to a lot of superficial ways of communicating, marketing, advertising. And it's, if you really try to understand the mind of the market, if you get into the subconscious of the market and you understand how they think, how they feel, uh, if you can gain true empathic understanding by not just studying them externally, but really examining and evaluating and exploring them, it gives you a strength. And then you tie that 
to immutable principles mm. that just have to be uh, adapted to whether it's Facebook or 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 a podcast or a webinar. It, it gives you. I mean, I've been very blessed. I mean, I've been able to do this through you know seven recessions or crisis. I've been able to do it worldwide. I've been able to do it in. Uh, we've done over a thousand industries. If you master it, and not just what I, I mean, I've just been able to, I, I'm, a, I'm a vessel who's been able to, uh, to, uh, uh, to collect, distill, prioritize, codify, and then, and then um, present in, in, under the guise that you have the ability as an entrepreneur to work on the geometry of your business. We were talking earlier about this new work I'm doing, which is taking your profits beyond exponential. But when you realize how much more is possible, Nick, from time, uh, access to market, uh, advertising, interaction, capital, human capital distribution, uh, uh, intellectual capital, and you start evaluating looking at how much more you can get out of every level. But when you combine lots of these together, it becomes geometric. And then as I told you, and I can explain it if you want, mathematically, there is absolute inarguable proof and, and acknowledgement. You can take performance five gradients above and beyond exponentiality. When you can do that, I believe no business owner should ever operate in what I call the incremental zone. It's the same effort, time, capital, risk, uh, 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 everything or less can have you operating in the exponential zone. So that's it. Today's episode. Thank you so much again for everybody who has supported Scale Up Your Business over the last two years. I hope you enjoyed that trip, as I said, down memory lane with 10 amazing conversations. So much value. It was very, very hard to choose those short clips, those short sound bites, but they are some of my most memorable um, points within those, those great chats with these amazing titans of business, entrepreneurship, and indeed life. So I'll leave you today with something I've said consistently and what I mean has been a mantra for me in all my life. And just to say thank you again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Bye for now. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.